Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her calf by her side. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to Zorah Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And that we'll be able to apply them to our hearts and our lives and to effectively discern who and what it is that we are worshipping today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are remembering that first Palm Sunday, <clears throat> the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. And, and this is for generations being described by Christians as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But have you ever asked yourself this question? If this was a triumphal entry, then why did they crucify Jesus at the end of the week? Even the compilers of the, the revised common lectionary realized that, that this Sunday is a problem for us because they give us two readings from the Gospels. One reading is from this passage, and it's called the Palms reading. Not Palm reading, by the way, the Palms reading. And the other one is called the Passion reading because of the suffering of Christ at the end of the week called The Passion of Christ and you remember that film Mel Gibson made The Passion of Christ I think I just start to cry thinking about that film I, I couldn't watch it it just oh, it was amazing depicting the last hours of Jesus so we, ha we have a problem today that we need to, to address if this is such a glorious Sunday for all Christians, what goes wrong by Friday that Jesus will find himself betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested by the high priest's guards, accused by a coalition of religious leaders, tried by a Roman governor, and sentenced to death, the death of a common, common criminal, death by crucifixion? So that's the first thing I want to talk about today, is that we've got a problem on Palm Sunday. And how do we understand this? The second thing I want you to, to look at is that actually there were two processions on this day. And you might not know about this. You not, might not know that this wasn't the only procession that Jerusalem saw on that particular day. Because in the year 30 AD, Roman historians record that the governor of Judea, by the name of Pontius Pilate, he led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem on the same day. 
Now imagine the spectacle of that entry. From the western side of the city, the opposite side from which Jesus comes, Pontius Pilate leads the Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot. Each, each soldier is, is clad in highly polished leather armor. On, his, on the centurion's head, there are hammered helmets gleaming in the bright sunlight. Just imagine it. On their sides, they've got sheathed in their scabbards the finest swords that were available at that time. In their hands, each, each centurion would carry a spear, or if it was an archer, he would carry a bow and a quiver of arrows as well. Drummers would be beating out a cadence for the march because this was no ordinary entry into Jerusalem. Pilate, as governor of the region, which included not only Judea but Samaria and Idumea, knew that it was standard practice for the Roman governor of a foreign territory to be in its capital for religious celebrations. It was the beginning of the Passover, which was a strange Jewish festival that the Romans allowed. However, the Romans must have been aware that this festival celebrated a liberation of the Jews from another empire, the empire of Egypt. So Pilate, as the leading Roman, had to be there in Jerusalem. And since the Romans had occupied this land by defeating the Jews and deposing their king about 80 years before, uprisings were always in the air. The last major uprising, long before Pilate's time, had been after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC. And the uprising started in Sepphoris, about eight kilometers from Jesus' boyhood home of Nazareth. And before it was over, the city of Sepphoris, the capital of Galilee, and the town of Emmaus had been entirely flattened and destroyed by the Roman army. And after putting down the rebellion there, the Romans marched on Jerusalem. They pacified the city, and they crucified 2,000 Jews. That makes a statement, doesn't it? All the ones that were accused of rebellion were crucified. The Romans made their intolerance of rebellion well known. And so on this occasion, Pilate had traveled with a contingent of Romans finest from his preferred headquarters in Caesarea by the seaside to that stuffy, crowded place called Jerusalem. Now, for the Jews, the temple in Jerusalem will be the center of the Passover activity. For the Romans, Antonia's fortress, which was a Roman garrison built adjacent to the temple, would serve as a good vantage point on which to keep an eye on these Jews. What are they up to? Let's make sure they're not misbehaving. Let's make sure there's not another insurrection here. So Pilate's entry into Jerusalem must have sent a message to the Jews and to those who might be plotting against the Roman Empire. The spectacle is meant to remind the Jews of what happened last time. Last time you rebelled, we killed you all. Don't do it again. We can see all these guys. They're all trained warriors marching into the city. Think twice about this. But as I said, there are, two, there are two processions on this day. So let's go back to Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem. If, if Pilate's procession was, was meant to be a show of military might and strength, Jesus' procession was meant to show exactly the opposite. And both Matthew and Mark, they record Jesus', Jesus, Jesus own words as he instructs the disciples to go into the city and find a donkey tied up and to ask the owner if they may use the donkey, and they are to say the Lord needs them. And then Jesus quotes from Zechariah in the ninth chapter. Verse 9, chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But what's interesting is that there's a lot more to that passage 
from the prophet Zechariah is more than just a description of Jesus' means of transportation. The prophet Zechariah is speaking to the nation. And in Zechariah, the prophet reassures the people of Judah, called Judea in the New Testament, that God has not forgotten them. Forgotten them. He says, I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. And then they have this bit about the Savior coming in, gentle and riding on a donkey. Then in verse 10 he says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rules will extend from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. So in other words, what's happening here, when Jesus quotes from the prophet Zechariah, those who hear him are reminded about the whole passage. The entire thing. And the message that they heard is that God is going to deliver the nation from an oppressor. And who's the oppressor? Those nasty Romans. That's what they're hearing. Jesus quotes this little bit and they hear a whole lot more. They read into the story. But the king they seek will come to them humbly, not on a, on a, on a war horse and a slow-moving donkey, the symbol of a king who comes in peace, according to Zechariah. So if you think about that, that particular day, the two processions, they couldn't be more different in the messages they convey. Pilate, leading the Roman centurions, asserts power and might of the empire of Rome, who crushes everything that opposes it. Jesus, riding on a young donkey, embodies peace and tranquility, the shalom that God brings to his people. And those who watch that day, they make a choice. They're either going to serve the God of this world, might and power, or they'll choose to serve the king of a very different kingdom, the kingdom of God. Which brings us to a problem, my third point, the problem of leadership. I read a fantastic quote from a, from a book entitled Leadership on the Line by uh, Linsky and, and Heifetz, defining leadership this way. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at the rate they can absorb. And I thought, like, that's so true. We've got a general election coming on. I was watching a thing on the ABC the other night, and uh, they have this, this, this gadget you can find on the internet called a vote compass from the ABC. And, and what it is, there's a series of 30 questions, and you answer what you think should happen on, on those 30 issues. And it helps you work out where do you stand in relation to the major parties. It doesn't tell you how to vote, by the way, because I, I turn out to be a, a redneck liberal greenie. So I'm going like, <laughs> I still don't know what to do, right? But if I consider this thing about the leadership on the line, leadership is about disappointing your own people at the rate they can absorb. When I think about the election that's coming up, I, I look at, well, if I'm, and I don't want to offend anybody. If you've got particular political leanings, that's fine, bless you. But I'm just looking at it going like, which party's going to disappoint me least? Because they're all going to disappoint me. Because they haven't got the same worldview that I have. So which one's going to disappoint me least? And that's kind of the way I'm, I'm looking at it. Which is in line with what's, what's written here. You know, leadership is about disappointing your own people at the rate they can absorb. But let's go back to Jesus. Jesus has another problem. Of course, his, his followers and, 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 and others who get caught up in his entry in Jerusalem, they think they're choosing to follow Jesus. But at the end of the week, Jesus will have disappointed the crowd at a rate faster than they can stand. 
they will turn on him. Even those closest to Jesus, the 12 disciples, they either betray him outright or they abandon him in confusion and fear. It's interesting to note that the crowd on that Sunday was proclaiming, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, what they are saying, they are placing their faith in Jesus, that he's going to restore the glory of the nation to its splendor when David and his son Solomon rule the united kingdom. That was the biggest Israel ever was, and the most glorious it ever was. They are looking for that to happen again. That's what the Jews wanted after all. To be ruled like a, by a man like David, a man so committed to, to God that the Old Testament prophets had proclaimed that the, the coming Messiah would sit on the throne of his father David and the Messiah would bring back glory to Israel, would rid the nation of its oppressors, would rule benevolently and be kind to the common people. Sounds like a lady you'd vote for, doesn't it? See, Jesus had, had challenged the rulers of Judea already. Not the Roman rulers, but the local rulers. He said to them that the temple, the temple is not the only way to find God's forgiveness. And further, that the temple is going to be destroyed with not one stone left on another. Now, of course, those who make their living from the temple, like the scribes, the chief priest and his priests, the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, the religious parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're all going to lose their power and their prestige if there's no temple. He's upsetting the wrong people, isn't he? Or even if the temple was no longer the only place where one could be forgiven by God, they're going, like, hang on, the temple is the only way, surely. So when Jesus miraculously saves the lame man by first saying, your sins are forgiven, and then healing him, he challenges the authority of the temple system. Jesus turns everything upside down. And Jesus drove the money changers from the temple. He proclaimed that the temple was to be a house of prayer all nations but the religious leaders had made it a den of thieves and Jesus exposes the corruption of the tax system that these Jews had the scandalous monetary exchange rate and the dishonesty of those who sold animals for sacrifice at inflated prices Jesus had disappointed and alienated powerful people and he did so because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, most of the Levitical priests and the others who ruled on Rome's behalf Right? The Jewish leaders were, were ruling not on behalf of, of God, but on Rome's behalf. They were part of the same system of oppression and domination that Pilate was part of. That brings me to my fourth point for this morning. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem may or, not, or may not have been planned to occur at exactly the same time as Pilate's procession through the western gate of the city. Whether it was planned or not, the two processions, they provide a contrast that's unmistakable. Because you see, Pilate served the Son of God too. Now, I'm not about to go into heresy here. Hear me out. Hear me out. The late Emperor Augustus, who ruled from 31 BC to 14 AD, was said to have been fathered by the god Apollo and was conceived by his mother Atia. Inscriptions refer to him as the Son of God, Lord, and even Saviour. And after his death, the legend had it that he was seen ascending into heaven to take his place among the gods. Augustus' successors, Tiberius during Jesus' life and ministry, he also bore divine titles. And until later in the first century, the emperors could demand not only to be addressed as God, but to be worshipped as God. So there's a contrast between kings and kingdoms that was on display in Rome. In the, on that day 
although many of the common people thought they, they sided with Jesus, they did so for the same reasons that the Pharisees and others sided with Rome. They thought that Jesus could do for them what Rome had done for their own rulers, make their lives better, deliver them from the oppressive system under which they lived and worked and turn the tables on the Romans. And that's why at the end of the week, the crowds turn on Jesus. They don't think he's going to do any of these things that he thought he was going to do. They thought he was going to do. And in addition, Jesus is actually going to make life worse for them, not better. Their religious leaders, and this is amazing, the religious leaders, all of them who never agree about anything, agree on this one thing. Jesus is going to attract the attention of the Roman Empire, especially during the Passover, and Rome will come down fast and hard on the entire nation. Let's get rid of him. The only time the Jewish leaders ever agreed on anything. So when Jesus is accused, when he's brought, brought by, by Pilate before the angry mobs, they want to get rid of him. And Jesus, in their, in their mind, they never did what, what, they wanted, what they wanted him to do. He never defeated the Romans. He never dissolved this unfair tax system. He never put common people in charge of the government. And furthermore, he never would. So to appease the crowds that swelled the city of Jerusalem, Pilate, he had a custom of releasing prisoners, many of whom were political prisoners. But on this last week of the life of Jesus, Pilate offers the, the crowd a choice between Barabbas, a known robber, and Jesus, a failed Messiah, from their perspective. Fearing if that Jesus was going to be released, that he'd start all over again, the crowd begged for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be executed. And not just by any means, they yell, crucify him. Because crucifixion was one form of capital punishment that would show Rome that the Jews were in fact completely loyal to Rome. And that would humiliate Jesus even in death. But I'm getting ahead of myself for this week. This story is going to conclude on Sunday. But for the moment, I want to ask yourself, you to ask yourself this question. If I had been in Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, if I had seen both processions passing by, which procession would I have chosen to follow? You've got to ask yourself that question. Because that's the choice we actually make each day. To choose power and might over love. To choose the way things are done over the way God intends them to be. Two processions, two different kinds of theologies, two choices. Which would you choose? What kind of king do you expect? Which king will you serve? Brothers and sisters, the choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that Palm Sunday that occurred so long ago. For the incredible relevance that it has for our lives today. That you again would ask us to make a choice. Who is it that we will follow? The way of this world and this kingdom? Or your way and your kingdom? Help us to choose well, we pray in Jesus.